Happy New Year, coaches, and welcome back to the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. I hope your preparations for the season ahead are going well despite all the challenges. Today on this podcast, I speak with Alison Swain, who is the head women's coach at the University of Southern California. Alison spent 10 years in the same role at Williams College, winning a mind-blowing eight NCAA Division III national championships. She is now entering her fourth season at USC, but began her professional life as an eighth grade teacher and high school coach in Georgia. In this podcast, we discuss how her background in education influenced her coaching style, her remarkable success at Williams College, her decision to move from D3 to D1, and she also shares some helpful advice for young coaches trying to make their way in this profession. All right, Alison Swain, welcome to the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. Hi, Dave. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. It's it's good to see you, and and uh, glad you've been getting some time at home with the, the new addition to your family. Congratulations! Thank you. Yeah, it's been um, one of the pluses. One of the few pluses of this time for me is that I've just had a baby, and I get a little more time with her right oh, now at sure. home, working from home. So that's been yeah. good. Yeah, good. I'm glad you're getting to enjoy that. Um, well, look, I have so many questions for you, Allison. When I was as uh, sometimes I, I struggle coming up with questions for coaches and other times I've just, I have too, too many and I'm trying to figure out how can I fit them into a, an hour long slot, but, um, really just want to bring coaches back to, to your early days. You, you know, you're not, you don't kind of have the traditional story of being a, an assistant coach at a power five and then moving on to being a head coach at, at, you know, where you are now at USC. I mean, you really started, um, as an educator, as an eighth grade teacher, as a high school, uh, tennis coach, um, and you have a master's in education. So education is really important to you, but how do you believe this educational and and professional background influence how you operate as a, as a college coach today? Yeah. Well, the fundamentally core to me is that, uh, coaching sport is, is an edu- is an educational endeavor. Um, and it's an opportunity to not only teach your sport, but teach life skills, uh, well beyond that sport. So that's at the core of who I am as a coach and why I coach. And for me, after being a, a school teacher for so many years, um, when the opportunity came about at Williams and I got hired, I just felt like that was it for me. I had found what I was meant to do and um, the vehicle through which I was meant to teach. And that was tennis and, and college tennis as a team sport specifically. Mm. And, and has that influenced even how you plan and pre- uh, prepare, you know, you think about your days as a teacher and curriculum writing and, and how you prepare for, for, for every class is that, how does that influence kind of how you operate as a coach now? Yeah, I'm definitely a planner anyway. Um, but it does. Yeah. I write up, I write up practice plans. Like I would have written up lesson plans and, um, I sometimes take a backward approach to it and, and start with postseason play and work my way backwards to the first day of the season. And obviously you can't plan every day in detail, nor do I try that until, you know, 24 hours beforehand. But, um, I think it helps me wind themes throughout our season. Uh, both in terms of tennis and the, the technical and tactical pieces we're um, trying to teach, but also the themes around our culture and our team values and um, the intangibles that help us be great competitors and great teammates. 
Mm-hmm. And and tell me how you know you mentioned yeah you you, you moved from from um, you know the, the high school world uh, in, into Williams College and you won eight Division three NCA titles in in ten years. I mean, how do you even wrap your head around that? And then <laughs> what actions do you believe you were taking on a daily basis that allowed that level of success to be possible? Yeah, for sure. I think. Um we had won the first national championship as a team when I was a player at Williams. And so when I got the job, I think in the back of my head, I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if we won a national championship at some point while I was coaching at Williams, but I never (laughs) dreamed or set my sights on, Hey, let's win a national championship. Let's try to win one every year. Um, that wasn't my goal, but I, but I came into a program where, where the girls had had a tough loss, uh, late in the NCAA tournament the year before and were really driven. And so I inherited a great group from that mindset that had some experience at the championship level and, and had some hunger. Um, and it just went from there. And I think one of the keys for me, well, two keys, one is, is culture. I always, from the onset, I always focused as, on culture as a huge part of what we were doing and a priority. And I think that really helped us in the close matches and down the stretch. And the other piece is after we had won uh, the first year and were defending I, I always knew in some ways that was going to be its own challenge in itself to defend. And so I looked for ways every year where we could do things, not exactly the same, but a little bit better, 1% better, 5% better. And what could I change and how I prepared our team and developed our team and how could I get better to be better for them each year. And I think that mindset helped me stay creative, uh, and open to developing and learning and growing mm-hmm. each year. And how maybe did that culture stay the same or how did it evolve or, or how did it differ say from your first national championship to your last mm-hmm. at Williams? Yeah, I think I matured a lot. I was uh, 28 uh, at the time. Um, so the way I related to players early on was, was different than I related to them 10 years later. Uh, I knew I knew a lot more about college tennis, the recruiting landscape, who, who was a good fit for our program. Um, you know, how to go about recruiting. Uh, I, I was, I certainly was better at player development as well. I mean, everything got better. I hadn't coached a day of college tennis in my life when I took the job at Williams. So every aspect you can imagine got better over time. I think one thing that, that changed too is, um, I became a better advocate for what we needed as a program to be successful. And I didn't always get it, but, um, I learned how to, you know, ask for those things, you know, advocate for those things. So as an example at Williams, we're in the Northeast. We, we don't have, uh, we have a lot of our season where we're playing indoors and we didn't have access to great indoor facilities. And one of the things we were able to do while I was there is, is get our team some money to go to some private indoor courts, um, throughout the winter. And that was a huge benefit and early spring. And that was a huge benefit to us that didn't exist before. Um, the other thing that changed while I was at Williams, which will be a shocker to anyone in, um, power five schools is, we went from basically no strength and conditioning program to a very robust strength and conditioning program. Um, so again, it's that idea of like 
getting better um, in terms of what we had for our program. And then, like I said, I also spent a lot of time in each year reflecting and thinking about how could I be better at what I'm doing, whether it was recruiting or player development or that team dynamic. But the thing that never changed is our focus on playing college tennis as a team sport and being a really close knit supportive team. Mm. And you talk about advocating for your program there. Uh, I haven't really got into that a whole lot in previous podcast episodes and it hasn't really come up, but it's, it's definitely something that is, uh, extremely important. So when you talk about, you know, fighting for that indoor court time, was it, uh, you know, a few years in, um, that you had the confidence because you'd won a lot. I mean, what, what advice would you have for coaches if, if they haven't even, you know, they haven't had that level of success that you're having, but they know there's some things in their program that are really important if they're to kind of move the needle and move the team forward. How, how did you go about advocating for those things and how would you advise other coaches to do so? Yeah, I think um, a couple of things I would say, approach it professionally, write something up, um, you know, be an advocate for yourself. So anytime you feel like complaining about something, um, make a plan for how to address that problem so that it's not a complaint, but it's a possible solution. Mm. And, and, uh, you know, I didn't get yes right away. So be consistent you know, you don't need to be overbearing, but if you have a budget cycle and you revisit that once a year or every or twice a year, you have a conversation about that, um, then bring it up, show them what you've written up again, uh, tweak the plan and expect it to be a long-term, not a short-term solution. So, you know, we started advocating, I think I started advocating for that my second or third year, and it, it probably took a year and a half and it was very limited. It wasn't every day. We still had to figure out the transportation, um, you know, it was maybe once a week. And by the time I left, um, we had, a new surface on our indoor courts, which was an improvement. And we were able to go three to four days a week to these true indoor courts as well. So it was a big change. Yeah. And then, so beyond the titles at, at Williams, what are you most proud of your, during your tenure there? And, and, you know, is there anything that you would have done differently now that you look back at your 10 years there? Yeah, that's, uh, it's hard to say if I would have done anything differently. Um, at this point, I, I try not to regret things either. Um, and now looking back, I thankfully and fondly really just remember a lot of the good things we did and the good choices I made. I, if I racked my brain, I could probably think of a recruit I wish we'd gotten, or, uh, I said no to that went and was a star somewhere else, something like that. Um, but what I truly value most is the relationship piece. I mean, that's a super easy answer. And, um, you know, I picked up my mail yesterday and I had, uh, a gift for our newborn in the mail from a player I coached who graduated, you know, almost 10 years ago and, you know, a wedding invitation this summer and things like that. And I consistently still catch up with so many of the players I coached and hear from them and in better times, see them. Um, and that's the most important thing to me. And on the flip side, Williams had a really close athletic department. So those coaches there, um, my athletic director there are still very good friends of mine that I keep in touch with. So that's mm -hmm. the piece that stays with you. 
Yeah, definitely. So moving on then to, to, uh, transitioning to the university of Southern California. So did you have a desire to move into division one coaching before USC? And then can you kind of take us through that process and, you know, talk to us as to why it was the right decision in that point in your life and your career? Yeah. Uh, you know, I really found a home at Williams. I went there as well. Um, so I wasn't actively looking to leave, but I had looked at some openings in the past. I had thought about division one, um, ironically, probably like four years into my career, I really thought about moving. Um, and at year 10, I, I wasn't thinking as much about that. Um, but when the USC position opened up and, and I got a call about it, um, you know, that's a moment that makes you stop, you know, anytime USC calls you, <laughs> uh, and I'm sure each coach could think of a list of a certain number of schools on there. You, you stop and it gives you pause. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, USC offered a couple things that I was looking for at that point in my career, which was a new challenge. Um, the opportunity to see if I could translate everything I'd learned from coaching at Williams to a power five program and see if it would work there. Mm -hmm. And just greater access to my athletes and, and an upgrade in facilities. Uh, so I would say that even with everything I just talked about with advocating for more indoor time and things like that at at Williams, it, it was hard. Um, and, I really wanted to be somewhere where my athletes had had the time and the space to work with me and work with our fitness coach as much as they wanted to. Um, and we had longer seasons to do that in, and, uh, I'm from the West coast originally. So being in Southern California to coach tennis, I mean, what more could you ask for in terms of weather and access and things Mm -hmm. like that? And when I got to USC for the on-campus interview, I still wasn't sure and if it was going to be the right fit for me uh, or if I was going to be the right fit for them. And I was really blown away with the sense of community at USC um, the and the legacy of the athletic program, as well as the academic opportunities and was a little surprised at, at how much I felt like some of the values were in line uh, with what I valued at Williams with the student athletes being academically focused as well as athletically focused and, um, really being able to pursue excellence, which is something that Williams offered at the D three level is an ability to pursue excellence in anything a student wanted to pursue it in. And, and USC offered that as well. Right. Right. So in terms of that process, then, I mean, like I said, you were, you're trying to figure out if it was the right fit for you and, 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 um, you know, so you go through that process, you go through the interview, you get offered the position. Uh, how do you feel at that time? Was it, did it end up being a very difficult decision once that offer came through or, or how? Yeah. That? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's part of me that, coming from D three, even with all my success, I didn't really expect that I would get the offer (laughs) in some ways. Um, and when, when it seems more and more like there was greater and greater interest from USC, I mean, I think I spent those days deciding and, and, 
you know, getting that offer, I spent those days in tears. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was just so torn (laughs) about what to do. Um, because I felt so tied to Williams and to my players and, um, you know, we had just won a national championship. I, you know, I just, I've, it was so to think about leaving those girls was really difficult to me Mm -hmm. for me. And I was talking to a friend and mentor of mine and they said to me, you know, they all graduate too at some point. And, and I remember thinking, this is really hard, but that's, what's holding me back from leaving. And, and it's true. They, they graduate in four years as well. And there's never a good time to leave. It's only if the opportunity on the other side is the right one. And, um, it was time for me to graduate as hard as that was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's something I wanted to talk with you a little bit about was like you said, because despite all your success at Williams, you were still uh, a little uh, in disbelief that USC might offer you this job. And, And I feel like, um, you know, I, I was involved in two, um, coach searches during my time at the university of Oklahoma. The first one was with the men's coach, uh, after my first year there and then, uh, hiring a replacement when I left the university of Oklahoma. And, and it was always shocking to me just how, uh, dismissive our administration was of, uh, any coach who hadn't, um, uh, I guess coached at, uh, the power five level. I mean, whether it was another division, whether it was mid major, um, uh, and I just, you know, they they were looking at assistant coaches at Power Five, and, and no disrespect to assistants at Power Five. I was an assistant at Power Five College before I became a head coach at OU. Um, but they haven't proven themselves. Um, they, they've they've done a great job, I'm sure, as assistant coaches, but they haven't proved themselves as a head coach. So if I was administrator, I'm more likely to look at, you know, if you can coach, you can coach. Is is my belief, regardless of of the level. So why in your opinion, do you think USC were more open to hiring a coach from, from a different division? And, and is my, do you think my experience was unique or why is this even in our heads? You know, why did you have that disbelief and how do we change that stigma? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think your story is probably more common. Um, I mean, you look at the numbers and you can tell it's more common. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's probably, I, I would liken it to, and I don't know if this is a, this is not a perfect analogy, but, um, the same hiring practices that existed and still exist for women sometimes, or, um, people of color there, you know, you, you, there are stigmas out there and implicit biases, whether we know them or not. And, um, that can be tough to overcome. And, um, coaching tennis or coaching swimming or coaching, um, you know, baseball or whatever it is, is not just about the technical skill, um, or the strategy. That's a big part of it. And I believe if you're a great coach at any division, you are great at that. You've had to become great at that. But I think that is a stigma that unless you've coached a player of this caliber before, you don't know how to coach them. Um, and I think that's part of it, or unless you've been in the power five, you don't know how to navigate the power five. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's so much more that goes into coaching, communication, relationships, uh, how to develop, uh, 
a, a plan for a season and help people peak at the right time? How do you instill a set of values in a program? How do you recruit all those things? And a lot of those have less to do with division. So I certainly echo your sentiment that if you're a great coach at any level, you can be a great coach at, at every level, potentially. Um, in terms of USC, uh, I'm not exactly sure why they were open. Um, to me, I'm very grateful that they were. I, I think the thing I, my advice I would give is to, to administrators or people on hiring committees is a phone interview, at least two people that you wouldn't pick out normally. Maybe that's a woman for a men's coaching position. You know, maybe it's somebody from a different division. Maybe it's a volunteer coach, you know, no. but, but that would be my recommendation because often I've been on a lot of hiring committees and often you get surprised when you do that. Mm. Um, and then for people interviewing is I always say the interview is a two way process. It's to figure out fit on both sides. So I approach that interview very, very humbly, but, um, really to ask my own questions as well as ask answer theirs, um, and have a conversation. And I think I came prepared to that conversation and, uh, what I had to share about my experience and my vision, um, apparently really resonated for what they thought the program, the direction they wanted the program to go in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. Um, uh, we'll need to send this podcast to a few administrators and consider <laughs> yeah. your words there. I'm not sure how many of them are tuning in, but maybe I know. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe but, we'll uh, get some, we'll get some tennis coaches on hiring committees. That yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, it's great advice. Um, so what were maybe some of the, uh, on a, we've talked about some of the similarities there, you know, if you can coach at this level, you can coach at every level, but what were some of maybe some of the unanticipated challenges moving from D three to D one, or was it relatively smooth for you or, or are there things yeah. that you look back now at D three and, and really miss? And, and yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a lot of questions in that one question. So I'll, <laughs> I'll start with a couple things. Um, I think, for me, one thing I noticed is a lot of, not every, so these are huge, you know, these are sweeping general generalities. Let me first say that. But, um, one of the themes I've seen is the players that came in to when I coached D3 were hungry to be part of a team environment, really searching for that and felt the rewards of that almost immediately. And the sacrifice to be part of that team environment was very easy for them for the reward. Mm -hmm. um, one of the themes I, I find um, now is that uh, the players I coach have been in an environment that's much more individually focused on them mm -hmm. and, and their achievement. And so um, coming into a team environment is a big learning curve for them. It's something they haven't experienced. And, and also maybe, you know, my D3 athletes probably played some team sports. A lot of them did growing up, played multiple sports, had that team environment. That's more rare for mm -hmm. a lot of the athletes I coach now. So, um, 
yeah, it's a bigger, bigger learning curve and a bigger adjustment to how they train, trained growing up and, and their relationships with their, their coaches and their peers they trained with. Um, the other thing that I never anticipated, but is really interesting is, um, I think at Williams, we taught resiliency in the program without even trying. You know, we had to practice late at night or early in the mornings because of court time. Um, we had these horrible indoor courts in our field house that were multi-purpose from the 1970s that weren't even made to be tennis courts. And we hit on them regularly and they, we had to figure out how to do it. We'd go play a dual match and, uh, you know, with ad and on four courts and it might take six hours. Uh, we never got on a plane to go anywhere except spring break. So we were in a 15 passenger van driving up to Maine and back. Um, we, yeah, resiliency got taught whether you liked it or not. Um, and at USC, we have so many resources and I'm so thankful and I wouldn't trade them for the world. Um, and we have amazing facilities and they help us excel in so many other ways, but we don't have built in resiliency training in that same way, which is, which is kind of interesting to think about, uh, the things that I, was most frustrated would buy ended up being some of the greatest teachers <laughs> in our program. Yeah. Um, and I also think just, you know, big, big adjustments. I, I was, I didn't have a built-in roster of recruits, you know, I was recruiting at a different, a whole different landscape, different type of school, different level of player. So when I got to USC, I had to God just, you know, sprint on a treadmill to catch up to that. Um, and and get going on that front and start watching a whole new arena of players. Didn't do a lot of international recruiting before USC. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were a lot of little things to catch up on like that um, where, yeah, I felt like I was sprinting on a treadmill for a good six to nine months mm-hmm. on that front. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. And then, you know, you talk about the, um, the, the team, team versus the individual, you talk about the resilience piece. And so, so how have you gone about teaching resilience when it's not necessarily built into the day-to-day life? And then how have you gone about teaching about the the team culture versus the Mm -hmm. individual? Yeah, I think, um, the, I've learned on the, on the team culture aspect, you know, part of it is there's this great balance you have to find between having a set of standards for your program. That's really important to you that you keep up and you keep consistent and also meeting each player where they're at and helping them along and finding that balance can be really challenging and really tricky. And when you do, it's pretty amazing um, because you see a lot of growth. So, you know, we, I still have players that want that team environment. Um, I think it's just understanding that you're not always going to get, things are not always going to happen exactly the way you see that they should happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I want to work on this specific thing today in team practice that may not happen for you in team practice. It may have to happen in an individual, or this is the line I envision I will play. Um, that may not happen for you because that may not be the best thing for the team in that moment. Mm-hmm. And, and the conversations that have to happen around that. Um, but ultimately creating space and time to have fun together on court 
or off court when we travel um, and just bond and talk. And then also, you know, really actually through Zoom, we've spent a lot more time doing this, but finding ways to be vulnerable and share. Um, and it's a big reminder that all your time with your team should not be about tennis. And, and when you help create those relationships on the team with, with you and your players and also between the players, then that, that team camaraderie slowly comes about. Um, but it takes a lot of time and it takes, um, conscious effort. Um, and then the resiliency piece, a lot of that comes through competition. Um, and it comes through, through other ways. Again, I think almost more individual ways, what, what's challenging for a particular player on your team and how are you helping them through that? And how are you helping them see a perspective that even though this is challenging for them right now, it's, it's helpful or it's something they haven't wanted to do, um, in the past. You know, I, I think about some of the things we do in fitness that are new for some players what, that have consistently spent most of their time on court training and giving up a little of that on court training time for the fitness piece. Like how do you help them through, um, that perspective? Mm -hmm. Um, so there's lots of little ways and, and our players have developed it very differently. Each of them through their own personal challenges. Mm -hmm. And would you be able to provide any examples of how you've shown that vulnerability to your players or, or with your teams? Is it something that you're thinking about often as to how you're showing them you're, you're a human being as well, or. Yeah, I think it's, I actually think it's something we've done a lot more of as a team. Um, the last several months, um, uh, over zoom and you asked me about my teaching background and I actually think my teaching background has helped me a lot. Uh, since our season got shut down in March, because um, we've had very, we've had some fun hangout Zoom sessions, but we've also had some very intentional Zoom sessions. And, and it has given me a huge reminder that we need to talk about more than tennis um, and, and need to provide informal, that's kind of easy, but also formal time to do that. So, um, you know, I think specific examples for me is, um, as a team, we spent a good bit of time talking about George Floyd's death this summer and Black Lives Matter and sharing our thoughts on that and, and working through it. Um, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I'm a new mother. So um, kind of going through my my pregnancy with my team and them seeing me as a mother. And, um, you know, we had a I had a bit of time where our, um, newborn was, was in the NICU. Um, so, you know, it comes about naturally, uh, as things, as life happens. And, and one of the things during this time where we've been off campus is we've shared a little bit more formally created that space, um, for life as it happens to each of us. Mm -hmm. So it's really, as, as those things occur in, in life, it's, it's maybe not trying to hide them from your team or, or pretending they're not happening, mm -hmm. just opening up about them and they'll learn something through that process as well, hopefully. Yeah, I agree. And it can be hard, you know, your, um, vulnerability and trust, uh, kind of go hand in hand and it's hard to, uh, for me, it's definitely a challenge to allow myself to be vulnerable 
uh, without the trusts. Mm. But when you have new players come in, um, things like that, that you don't know that well, I mean, trust isn't there from the beginning, but in you, they're kind of like stacking blocks. You need both. Um, mm. But I'm trying more and more to provide that example and, and also really trying to point out and praise when we have a player that shows vulnerability because a lot of times vulnerability can be interpreted as weakness. Mm-hmm. And if we have an opportunity as coaches to either support that view, that vulnerability is weakness or counter that view. But I think you have to actively counter that view. So when a player does share with you um, a vulnerability or with the team, you find a way to kind of praise and acknowledge the courage that it took to do that. Mm, for sure. Okay. Uh, just in terms of kind of career pathways as, as well, I know a lot of young coaches listen to this and are trying to figure out what direction to go. And I think sometimes, and I may have said this on a previous podcast that sometimes we, f- we get into this track and we feel like we, we have to be shooting to be the next, you know, head coach at USC or, or Florida or Stanford or whatever that kind of dream job is that that's in your mind. And I think sometimes, coaches need to step back and reflect upon, well, do I really want to be a head coach or is that just what society is telling me to be? And, and I'm actually better suited to an assistant. Do I want to spend most of my time on the court and having kind of the, the more fun relationship with the players and, and not have the stress, um, you know, not having all those sleepless nights uh, that you have as a head coach. Um, and then same from, you know, one division to, to, to the next. I mean, I, you know, as I get to know more about the other divisions, I, I probably was better suited to be a division three coach. It, it kind of, uh, is, I think if I was to go back to it, I'd be far more open uh, than I would have been at say 20, you know, three or 24, where it was like, I, you know, I want to be a power five coach. So h- how would you kind of advise young coaches on that, you know, trying to figure out what might be the best fit for them, how they open up their mind to all the different experiences out there. And, um, yeah, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, um, I think those kinds of questions are really important and it may be a little of you, you, you don't know until you're able to be in it and reflect on it. But, um, you know, one of the things that I think is wonderful is when I was first excited to get into college coaching, I really didn't see a pathway for me because, I played division three tennis. So I thought that's the division I should coach in. Mm. If I was going to be an assistant coach, there weren't that many assistant coach positions in D three, barely any at all, because at that point they weren't funded, that kind of thing. So anyway, I think being open when you're young and just starting out, uh, take away division, take away, um, the school and then put in there, is the environment right? Is the community right? Is the head coach, the right coach for me to work with, or is the athletic director, the right athletic director for me to work with? And what's the culture of the athletic department? Is that where I want to be? What are the kinds of kids that I can recruit to this school? And are those the types of athletes that I will be successful working with? Um, those questions are really important. And, um, I do think, I mean, I cannot tell you how important my assistant coach and my volunteer coach are to what I do. And we operate as a team and their role is not less important than my role. It's just different. When I was at Williams, 
I didn't have an assistant coach for my first five years. So I did everything for that program. Um, I was the person that was on court as well as doing all the administrative stuff at SC. I will say that's one of the differences is I feel like I am more, um, I'm in charge of a staff. I have to spend a lot more time on communication, administrative tasks, overseeing this big, big program. And I do spend less time than my assistants with our actual players at times and on court because of that. Um, and so that's something that I gave up that maybe I didn't know fully, um, that that was there. So I do think you have to be in it a little bit, but I would encourage you any young coach to take division out of it and take school name out of it and, and try to strip that back, which is really hard to do and look at the school for what it is and what the fit is. Um, I actually looking back, wish I had had the opportunity to be an assistant at some point because I, it would have been really fun to learn from um, another, uh, a head coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had to replace that with other opportunities for myself. So there was a time period where I actively sought ways to kind of make up for not having that experience, which I think would have been really valuable. Mm. And, and can you tell us what some of those things were that you did to develop yourself as a coach during that time? Yeah, for sure. I've, um, I've, most recently I'll kind of work backwards. I've been part of what's called what we call a mastermind group of other female, uh, head coaches, uh, in all, all different sports. There's about 10 of us. We get together once a month and talk, but I'm the only tennis coach in it. And I think pretty much everybody's the only coach of their sport in it. So it's a way for us to talk through and share ideas and, um, issues, uh, and support one another. Um, at Williams, I, would spend a lot of time with other coaches. I mean, almost daily meal with other coaches talking to them about um, their programs and what they were doing. So a lot of my mentoring has been coaches outside of tennis, but in college Uh, I have gone and observed other programs and reached out to other head coaches to go observe their program for a day or um, a week. And that has also been really helpful to me. Mm. Yeah, that, that, that's great because I mean, I'm, I'm sure I don't say, say I'm sure, but you know, when you've won eight national championships in, in 10 years, you, you may think at times, well, I've, I've got this all figured out. Uh, <laughs> I don't need to keep, keep learning, but it sounds like you've, you've uh, kept that hunger to learn and, and that desire to learn. Is there any other avenues other than the, the mastermind group and observing coaches there? Is there anything that you tried? I know it's difficult now, just, just having a baby and, and your, your mind might mm-hmm. be elsewhere right now, but, um, just how do you kind of see in the years to come? Um, how will you go about continuing to develop yourself as a coach and an educator? Yeah. I mean, one of the nice things now is I do have a staff. So, um, you know, my assistant and my volunteer coach, uh, they help teach me too. Mm-hmm. You know, and then Brett Macy, who's on the men's side and Chris Quinta at USC of tennis. I love talking to them. Um, I, I do read books. I do, um, this during COVID actually my assistant and I got a coaching workbook that we worked through together, uh, from a friend of mine who's, uh, does professional development for coaches. Um, and then we have, uh, 
a psychologist that comes and works with our program and I learn a ton from her and she has her own curriculum. And so for me now, a lot of it, I would say is, is the people we, I surround myself with in our program, whether that's outside consultants or our full-time staff. Right. And so back to kind of the career path, uh, what advice would you have for a young coach who's maybe currently coaching at the high school level? I, I do get emails sometimes from coaches who are currently coaching high school, but they have a strong desire to follow a similar path to yourself. Um, you know, winning and challenging for national championships, coaching at, at, you know, a program such as USC. Do you have any advice for, for that high school coach? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, put yourself out there. Um, you know, be looking, be working on creating a stronger network of, of college coaches that, you know, um, apply for jobs. Uh, if there's committees you can get on, if there's ways to get involved with organizations with tennis, whether that's the USTA or the ITA or the PTR, um, do those things because I think the network is important, whether we like it or not, uh, it's reality. Um, you know, I would say I do feel lucky and grateful. You know, Williams hired me without a day of college coaching, uh, under my belt, they took a chance and, and it turned out great for, for Williams and great for me. USC, I feel like took a little bit of a chance. They took a, a you know, non-traditional path in hiring me. Um, so I do feel like I got a little luck on my side in those scenarios. Um, talk to people about the interview process. Uh, because I think, I think that's really important too. Once you get that phone call, that's your, that's your opportunity. And, and you're not always going to get it every time you apply for a job, but once you get it, that's your opportunity. And, um, I think it's helpful to talk to other people that have served on hiring committees for the kinds of jobs that you're interested in or have gotten those kinds of jobs. So you can get some insight. Um, I get a lot of resumes when we have jobs open up and things like that. And this is really a small thing, but it amazes me the variety, I guess the nice way to say it is the variety of cover letters and resumes <laughs> I get in terms of professionalism. Mm -hmm. So if you've never had someone look at your resume that's in the field or in the position you want to be in or hires that position, I would strongly encourage you to do that if you're not getting to the phone calls. Mm -hmm. Very good. And then just any advice you'd have for current, uh, college tennis players, women, college tennis players, um, that are considering a career as a college tennis coach, what would kind of be your sales pitch to, um, those women out there right now who are considering again, kind of following in your footsteps? Yeah, I would say, when I was graduating from college, the only thing I knew is I wasn't going to sit at a desk somewhere. That's not what I wanted. Um, and it took me a while to get to tennis, tennis, which was my perfect platform for teaching, but it's incredibly dynamic. It's incredibly fun. It's incredibly challenging. You have to have a passion for it. Um, and ultimately I think knowing your why, why are you excited about it? And it should be because you love tennis, but it should also be for more than that. Um, because you can still love tennis and, and not be a coach. So if you love tennis and then there's reasons beyond that, um, your passion for the sport that coaching really attracts you go for it. Because I think 
I personally um, would love to see more, more women coaching sport um, as we have more and more girls playing sport and more boys growing up who might have the opportunity to be coached by a woman at some point, which I think could be great for them. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, Allison, we're going to move on to some uh, rapid fire questions. So what is a book that has made a major impact on you as a coach? Most in the last five years, probably six years now, because years go by faster than I thought. What drives, what drives winning by Brett Ledbetter. Okay. And do you have a favorite drill? Yes. Uh, doubles drill. Uh, I think we made it up at Williams, uh, because of a team we played against all the time. And there was one player who had a big forehand from the back. She didn't like to volley. She didn't have a great serve, but she had a huge forehand and she liked to hit it right at the net player. And we struggled with that. So we created a drill around that. Um, where it's just coach feeding the ball to the person at the baseline. They hit their forehand as hard as they can at the net player straight in front of them. Uh, there's a third player on the court on the side of the ground stroker, and we just play it out from there. So it's a lot of quick hands, quick reactions, great volley drill. Okay, great. Can you name one thing you've changed your mind on in recent years, whether that's in coaching or in life? <laughs> yeah. Uh, having a child. <laughs> I spent a lot of my adult life thinking I wouldn't have kids and now it's the best thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you have a favorite quote? Uh, I have two that I try to live by. The first one is better, not bitter. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how I approach challenging situations. <laughs> um, and then the Teddy Roosevelt quote, which is much too long to quote the whole thing here, but it's about putting yourself in the arena and how mm -hmm. that comes with both the experience of failure and great achievements. But only if you put yourself out there and put yourself in the arena, can you feel the triumph of both those things. Yeah, no, I, I love that passage as well. And, and, uh, reminds me when I'm receiving uh, criticism at the ITA from coaches <laughs> <laughs> that it's better to be in the arena than, than out of it. So, um, yep. and, and what is one lesson you hope all your players have learned by the time they leave USC? <laughs> Yeah, in 13 and a half years of coaching, I don't think that's changed. It really is my a huge part of my why. Um, it's that teamwork, while in the moment, may require some sacrifice at the end of the day and throughout the rest of your life. The rewards of that teamwork, both in terms of achievement and relationship, are, are well worth that sacrifice. <laughs> I think that's a great note to, to leave it on, Alison. That was fantastic. Thank you for your time this morning and uh, really hope I get to see you in person in, in 2021 somewhere. Yeah, thank you for having me. 